0: Hi, welcome to Parenting the Edlerian Way. I'm your host, Edlerian Family Counselor and Parenting Expert Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Edlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child.
3: Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, it's Allison. Welcome back to the podcast.
0: Very excited to bring you another guest. Today, we're going to be talking with Sam Young, or as they call him affectionately, Mr. Sam by his community members. He is the founder and director of Young Scholars Academy a two-time Fulbright Scholar, a former Bridges Academy teacher for nearly 10 years, and a graduate of Bridges Graduate School of Cognitive Diversity. He is a neurodivergent educator himself, and he's committed his life to supporting twice exceptional neurodivergent students by helping them discover, develop, and lead with their strengths, talents, and unique interests. Welcome to the podcast, Sam.
2: I'm so excited to be here, Allison. Thank you.
0: Start with just bringing our audience, who may have different training backgrounds and experiences, and making sure that they're up to speed. Can you give us a, a definition of what you mean by neurodiversity and twice exceptional?
2: Twice yeah, twice exceptional. This yeah. is usually where most conversations start. I think is a good place as definitions. Um, so when we think of neurodiverse, the idea is this idea that that, that brains kind of exist on a continuum, right? That we have, uh, if you were to picture like a like a bell curve right, that, that m- many people kind of converge to the mean and have brains that function similarly and there's sort of set expectations around those. The idea of a neurodivergent brain is that it could be a brain that goes off to one end or off to the other due to the way that it's wired. That could be um, common diagnoses like ADHD, autism, dyslexia, dysgraphia. You know, the way in which the brain is intaking, processing and outputting information diverges from the quote unquote norm. We're finding now actually that when we look at a bunch of different brain scans, it turns out that they're more kind of like a thumbprint actually than a norm, right? They're all kind of unique, but they can still be clustered into different groups. So neurodivergent just means diverging different kinds of um, brains. When we talk about twice exceptional, if we stick with that same idea of the the bell curve i'm a very visual person so sorry Mm -hmm. no one can see me doing these hand gestures i'm (laughs) I'm watching you do
0: it i see the bell curve i'm following your finger i'm like a
2: conductor (laughs) i feel um uh, missed opportunity now um the idea behind twice exceptional is someone that is kind of firmly planted on both ends of that bell curve so they have dual or two exceptionalities they have exceptional strengths so they might be off to the right side of the bell curve and then they also simultaneously have exceptional struggles off to the left side. So this could be someone with, for example, a really high IQ, strength, ability, or talent, who also has one of those things that we mentioned earlier, ADHD, autism, auditory processing, dyslexia, etc. So it's the dual occurrences. And this is a population that I'm obsessed with supporting, I'm, I'm, I've committed my life to, and I'm, I'm really passionate about because they're arguably like the most important people that are the easy to overlook. When you think about the gifts and the talents and the strengths of people who are quote unquote classically gifted or schoolhouse gifted right it's usually pretty easy to tell they intake information well they test well you can say wow they're smart they're a good student but it's the students who have incredible talents and things that are often maybe covered up or masked or a bit harder to determine in in certain contexts like school might have a brilliant ability like a simone biles or someone who's you know an incredible gymnast on the floor you get her in the classroom she has adhd and she might not shine and so it's this population of people who have these these dual exceptionalities that are, are twice exceptional.
0: So let me just ask you your origin story, because it is very clear to me that you're passionate about it. How did you come across this and decide that this was going to be your mission to address this? Is there is there a personal story? Is it?
2: Yeah, I think it's deeply personal. A lot of the times we kind of go through life and then we look back and we're like, oh, that's why. Um, for me, I at a very early age was diagnosed with ADHD in fourth grade. And then again in 10th grade and again in college, just a triple check. Um, and, you know, school I always struggled a great deal with, but I had natural skills. And But I spent a lot of my life, like many, focusing on the the deficits. You know, you hear what you're not doing, you see it on your report card and so forth. And so that's the, the model that exists really in the Western world. It's called the deficit model or the medical model, which is let's bring the bottom up. Let's focus on what needs to be fixed. And... Because I think we spend a lot of our attention in that space, we don't see our own strengths. I had to always have other people kind of capture my strengths and point them out and realize, wow, actually, when I'm in this setting, when I switch gears, I'm actually on fire. I'm incredibly talented and I'm all these things. But when I'm not there, I'm just focusing on what I'm not doing. And my dad, who, when he was alive, was an incredible artist, was very much from a different time. He was born uh, in the first wave of the baby boom, 1947. and he. Lived in a time where he was this incredible artist, but that wasn't really what you did, right? So you, he had dyslexia and he had ADHD, and he, they, you know, they sent him off to military school, and he was like this great designer, and you know, it was very much like a fix it thing. So, not only is it something that's personal for me, but it's personal, I think, in my own family. And then I, I stumbled across this school by, I think, fate or destiny, uh, called Bridges Academy, which was really the first school that was committed to just serving the student, this population, and. They've been around for over 20 years, and I went there, uh, fell in love, kind of developed a term. I had an education background. I was already teaching, but I didn't know the terminology twice exceptional. And so then you were going kind of, there
0: as a teacher and not as a student at this point? As a
2: teacher, right. As yeah. a
0: teacher, yeah. yeah.
2: So I had already, I graduated. I had a degree in education. I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. Um, and then I was teaching and uh, came across this school, fell in love with it, really felt like I kind of... The further I got in, the more I realized like I was just like the kids, you know, and I looked around at the staff and realized they were too. And um, it just became this really magical place that I grew into. And they have a, a, a research center and then a graduate school. And I just fully developed headfirst into that and then eventually started my own school.
0: And so, and I want to talk about your school, but, but what, like, as I hear you having this discovery, it sounds like it's a place that like they get it. Can that not just be the norm for all education? I mean, I feel like we have so much research now on neurodiversity, that why are we having such a hard time trickling down what we know with the research and actually getting it into the the mainstream? Why aren't we changing the deficit model to the strength model? Gosh, well, it's just it it feels like we're up against these big institutions. You and I both. Because um, this is very compatible to to how Adlerians, you know, view human beings too, holistically and not in little categories and not, not boxes that are getting smaller and smaller. Um, and we have so much information, and yet we can't seem to change the social norms. Is that not, I mean, it's great to have these special institutions that aren't going to buy into it, but why can't we change the system? Do you have any sort of philosophical thoughts on that?
2: I think you know. Uh, did you ever see the TED Talk uh, or read the book, Sir Ken Robinson? Schools are killing creativity. Yes. Something to that effect. In that, he says, "We've all had an education, therefore, we all have an opinion about one." Right, and I think for a lot of us, it's almost like a Stockholm kind of thing, where you know it didn't work that well, but we darn it, it got us where we are, and we're going to just—it's that's the way it's got to be. And I think for a lot of people, they just kind of cling to their education forget the trauma forget the difficulties and then just have their kids do something similar even when it doesn't make sense you know and i like the agree with you by the way there's a lot of small institutions seem to totally get it but we haven't made the the big shift because i don't think that we understand the harm that we're doing when we look at ourselves when we look at our system you know the the education system is outdated right the the (laughs) i mean it was Frederick Taylor was the 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 turn of the 20th century. Frederick Taylor was the kind of beginning of, he was a like a um, kind of efficiency expert that went in and shaped how factories should work. And then around the concept called Taylorism, which the idea was 45 minute work periods, rotating schedules, moving kids around, lining up, um, rotating jobs and so forth. The education was built around that. Why? Because the purpose of t- school 100 years ago was to get kids ready for a factory. But we're not in an industrial era anymore. We're in an intellectual one. And school hasn't caught up because what happens is, well, the wheels of bureaucracy are slow to turn. And they were designed to be that way. But now it's working against us, right? So I think that there does need to be a big change. It's so obvious. I use the example of animals all the time, right? It's like you would not get mad at a dolphin for not being able to climb a tree or a monkey for not swimming well. But when it comes to people, We can't seem to let go that everyone needs to be good at everything and i just think that's an impossible standard which is just soul crushing because we internalize that and then we feel like doo-doo all the time
0: i i feel like every kid that i've ever worked with or any family where they failed out of the regular system the place they go to next is actually the system that I think should be the norm. So I'm like, thank God you failed out of the regular system. You're finally getting education the way it should be delivered for everybody
2: on the planet. Uh, so I'm like, <laughs> yeah, so can we just skip A and move to B or Z? Ex- exactly.
0: <laughs> and so you've t- so you you taught at this school and had this experience, um, and then uh, you know were inspired enough to to create your own academy. So tell me a little bit about how you pulled that together and what it's exceptionalities are? What does it look like that a, that a parent wouldn't see in a typical school or how how would you describe it?
2: Can I say one last thing about our prior conversation? I'd like to add, I think that there's something to be said. You you asked a question about institutions, right? How do we change institutions? How do we change societally? And I think that what is an institution or a society, but a collection of people, right? And I think it just starts with us, you know, going back to the Ken Robinson quotes for Ken Robinson. It comes with us Letting go of, I think, as parents, I know your audience is um, letting go of necessarily what you're hearing, not always believing the the system, so to speak, trusting your gut a bit more. And you know, my favorite psychologist in the world, he was the mentor to my mentor. His name is Dr. Joseph Renzulli. He mentored a woman named Dr. Susan Baum, and she was my my mentor. And Dr. Joseph Renzulli once said he's a professor at um, University of Connecticut, and the, the really kind of the founded founding member of their gifted program. He said that no one cares about Pablo Picasso's ability to do complex mathematics or Einstein's ability to paint, right? So why are we so obsessed with everyone doing the same thing? And and I think that if you know, as a parent, you have this amazing kid who is incredibly creative, uh, is so curious, is constantly diverging, is constantly tearing things apart to build them into a hundred different combinations that they've been built before, you know, Trust your gut. Do they need to be good at everything? No, that might serve them incredibly well, right? The ability to see gaps, do things differently, spot problems, come up with unconventional solutions. Like if we can let go of what you think school looks like and look at what society needs and what your child needs, I think that's way more important. So to answer your question in a in a long winded roundabout way, Allison, I think that no,
0: no, t- it's fascinating. <laughs> Take all the time. It's why I love podcasts. We have all the time in the world. Answer it fully. Yeah,
2: I th- I think that. That it comes with us let letting go a bit of how things ought to be and and developing our strengths and our talents and our interests. Because again, it's so obvious when you say the Picasso example or the Einstein example. I certainly don't care how good at math Picasso was, right? But when I go to a a museum, I'm obsessed with I'm lost in his work. I I don't care about his tax returns or his ability to, you know, read a social studies book. Um let's make that shift. Let's skip school and start thinking about a, a, a meaningful life my one of my favorite philosophy professors this guy dr jim hirsch who was my professor in university he said most people get life design wrong it's about dying an ecstatic death right and it's we don't look far enough ahead you know the question isn't what are you going to study this year what are you going to major next year it's how when you're on your when you're when you're it sounds morbid but I promise it's not when you really unpack it when your child's on their their deathbed at the end of their film and they wind it back you know was it meaningful was it fulfilling was it beautiful And I think if we're making decisions that align with that kind of life rather than we need to be able to get an A and turn in all of our work on time and, you know, get into college because there's so much pressure and all those things. I think that Things become a bit more clear. Easier said than done, but
0: yeah. Well, and and can I? I also came from a family where um, heavily invested in the arts. My mother was an art teacher. My dad worked in, at a university, but he was um, an undergraduate arts counselor. And my my parents were appalled that I went into the sciences. I disappointed them by
2: going into the science. <laughs> I have a science degree. It's every other generation. <laughs> oh my god!
0: So funny, but you know, but it's interesting because. You know the the how many people when their children are creative and artistic they're like but you got to keep a day job you know not everybody's gonna end up you know being the famous band player or the famous painter and you know don't pursue the arts and it's just it's it is amazing how biased we are like God forbid your kid you know wants to be a, a concert pianist or you know play in in a symphony because we have this scarcity mentality that even even when you sh- Show exceptionality in some of these things. We still overlay this whole thing about like, yeah, yeah, you got to be the top, or or you can't really make a living out of that. You should probably have something to fall back on. It's just such discouraging messaging about how to to put together a life. Oh my goodness!
2: It really is. I I I spoke at a conference like two weeks ago, and this just came out of the blue to me. I think I'd, I'd watched Star Wars the night before, and I said, you know, at some point, some math teacher probably had the gall to tell George Lucas, like, put away your doodles and do your, you know, fractions. You know, and, and you just think about like the audacity of that. Like at some point, someone was, or you know, I don't know, maybe it was science class or whatever. But you know, George I read this book that George Lucas like started designing these in third grade. And he, you know, I had hundreds of pages of journals of he'd read every character in these galaxies. And you think about the contribution of that to the international society that we have, right? The 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 world knows Star Wars. And I would say it's better off because of it. And at some point, some teacher, and maybe George Lucas's parents were like, you better turn in your math and do your history. And, you know, and it's just, it's it's comical in that situation, but we, we still don't, I think, make that click. I like the, I'm a very visual person. And the logo for our company is designed to be along the lines of this visual, which is, it's twofold. One is that we, our students have different colors, right? That they're Twice exceptional students have. If you if you see the logo, you can see it. Um, the logo is it's yellow, and there's the kind of a square that's yellow, right? So the edges stick out. That's important. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. And then there's a there's a circle that's blue, and then there's the green center, and the two colors mix and they make green. And the reason that this exists is twofold. One is that the yellow represents students' gifts; they're exceptional gifts, and they stick out, they kind of jut out. And then the the rounded part, the blue, is the the struggles. These are the bits that kind of round them out and they, it's kind of obvious to us. Sometimes we see them first sometimes. And then the, the middle is the green is they're, they're always both. They are not gifted. They're not learning disabled. They are both simultaneously. And that can be context dependent. And the, I, the, the, the reminder is that we can change the setting that our kids are in. I like can go back to the example of like the dolphin climbing the tree or the monkey swimming. Right. Same animal, same same creature, just in a different setting failing or thriving and i like the visual for our logo for the other reason because this is a really important one i think for especially for visual listeners our kids are square pegs and round holes right and society is dedicated for whatever reason to, to to knocking off their edges unfortunately and i would say that a meaningful life is lived when we hone our edges when we develop our edges so i think it's so important to not try to just stuff your kid in and fit in if they're not fitting in that's probably a good thing. Who else didn't fit in? Fell in the blank successful person. <laughs> you know? Totally. Uh, so I just think that's a really important reminder that that as a society, as an education system, as parents, as neurodiverse people ourselves, perhaps, that it's easy to compare ourselves. Why don't I X? Why don't I Y? And I think it's much harder to say, but I'm really good at A, I'm really good at B, I'm really good at C. I think that's an important transformation that we have to work at every day.
0: So I- I want to get the parents uh, engaged in, you know, wh- what would be a pragmatic actionable thing for a parent to say, oh, may- perhaps I have missed uh understood my kids, I've missed the struggles or you know, I didn't understand that that behavior came from that. What's something actionable to say, you know, how do we see it through the lens of this paradigm? So that they could reevaluate or try to understand, does my kid fit in this category? Do I really know my child at all? Uh, how do we turn that into like an action, an actionable takeaway for a parent listening to this right now? That Because not all kids are easy to, it's not always so absolutely apparent. Sometimes yeah. it's really apparent. Sometimes it's super right. apparent. <laughs> it's but then there's reason. a whole bunch of people that it is not so much the case.
2: Yeah, I think that one of the key things, I'll give a macro and a a more micro. Macro is be inquisitive. You know, instead of assuming, oh, so-and-so is behaving this way because they, you know, want to be difficult or because they're rigid, be inquisitive. Why are they behaving this way? What needs are they trying to have met? Are they getting up in class and going to the bathroom a lot because they have incredible anxiety around their maybe difficulties reading? Are they acting this way at home because wearing that mask all day at school is so difficult for them. And then they're the true selves at home. Are they saying no to going to the situation, not because they want to be difficult, but because they're incredibly sensitive to loud noises or bright lights? You know, we we don't know why without asking. And depending on our student's age, they might not be able to answer because they might not know or have the tools. But I think just going into any kind of um challenges that we might be seeing with with an inquisitive brain rather than a, a judgmental or even punitive brain i think is a, is a macro thought can we go and be curious rather than try to you know punish and have consequences and assume because we don't we don't know the why we might see the what we might see what's happening but we don't know why
0: how do you feel about assessments psychoed assessments i think they're incredibly
2: important yeah i think that that having various assessments Um, neuropsych assessments, different assessments can be incredibly important because, you know, the science is pretty clear, like early intervention, especially with something take, um, in the neuropsych world, like ADHD or, um, dyslexia, right. You can look at brain scans and see how someone, you know, they're using like compensatory parts of their brain that aren't really meant for certain bits, uh, let's say language processing or whatever it might be. And that's quite tiring it really fatigues them. And so having early assessments, again, especially neuropsych, I think that's incredibly important. But, you know, when it comes to psychoed, I think everybody should be in therapy. (laughs) I just think it's especially I joke that there's two kinds of people in this world, those in therapy and those who ought to be. And I think that our kids, especially, you know, our children right now are a very different generation. They're in tune with big conversations. They're they're in touch with their feelings. They are hyper aware of things happening in the world. And it's a lot to process. You know, how do you deal with, you know, not just reading something in the paper anymore, but seeing live footage of on several phones of like police brutality or. Racial tensions, wrongdoings, flooding, and climate change. And I'll take that to the nth degree. I have a girl in our school. She's 11 years old. She has a 179 IQ. Einstein's was like 130 something. Wow. So, I mean, this girl is profoundly, profoundly gifted and she's 11. You know, what do you do when you're 11 years old in a small body and you understand the entirety of climate change? Like that's incredibly overwhelming, right? Yeah. And so I think that, yeah, assessments, interventions, supports, again, always making sure it's a strength-based approach. We're not trying to fix anyone. We're just trying to support. And um, I think that kind of vetting your, the team that's gonna work with your kiddo is important, talking to other parents and other professionals and making sure we're not just trying to medicate everybody and jump right in and fix them, right? But we're trying to help, and meds can help. I, I take medicine, it helps me. But I'm also you know, aware of what my options are and when I should take it and when I shouldn't because I have this different approach.
0: I wanted to circle back to your idea about there's two types of people, the people that are in therapy and not in therapy because, A, that's very funny. But also, it goes down to, again, expanding for me anyways, I'd be interested in your thoughts, expanding the definition of what therapy is. Because I do believe that therapeutically, we live socially. And we know that the social environments in which we find ourselves, if they're healthy... They heal us. They form us. They strengthen us. They develop us, and I call that therapeutic. I call that therapy. If you go to a good school where people are, you know, building on those strengths and letting you feel like you belong and contribute and have all those qualities, those are therapeutic experiences. It doesn't mean sitting in a little eight by twelve office, you know, sitting on a little couch and talking for an hour to your therapist who's taking notes on a piece of paper. So, you know, I I, I want to broaden the idea. That when schools understand that they are therapeutic hotbeds, if they're done right, then and, and same with families, families are therapeutic if they're healthy and thriving. It's, it's where you grow and you develop. Um, and so I think that word it, it, again tends to have a, a social construct that puts it with the broken need to fix it um play up on the deficits throw on a label and i'm not talking about that i'm not talking about that and i love that i i think that we're like-minded in that
2: yeah i i think though that uh, i will push back a bit so yes i agree push away push away humans are social creatures first and i believe that the two key elements and and this you asked me earlier about the school and we'll talk about that but the two key elements in, in an effective educational program are like-minded peers, what I call the the X axis. This is for like plotting success, like-minded peers. So if you have gifted kids together, neurodiverse kids together, et cetera, and expert mentors who are also like-minded, right? And I think that with those two, with an older version of oneself, a mentor who can kind of guide the hero on their journey, and with other kids who are similar and have similar interests, take asynchronous kids, for example, if you have this girl I was talking about, you know, 11 years old with a 179 IQ, That girl's not going to do well with neurotypical friends, right? They're going to be interested in, I don't know what, Pokemon or something. You know, she is thinking about the, the sea levels rising and what we're going to do to help people who live by the water move and, you know, the climate raising two degrees, et cetera. So... Yeah. those kids need each other and you're, and you're absolutely right allison you know we are social first many parents focus on things like my kids not turning in their homework they're not doing this they're not doing that that can happen eventually but we need to work focus on the the basic you know acceptance esteem positive affect, right all of those things and if you actually look i, go, I keep going back to all these brain scans but if you look at brain scans and you see the parts of the brain that are firing when we're feeling good feelings when we're feeling that self-esteem they're actually directly in the way. It's like the preferential cortex. That social filter is also what's filtering in assignments and prioritizing and task management and so forth. So we have to handle those things first. I agree. The, the reason I said I push back a little bit is because I also think that we need to destigmatize therapy because they're not the same. I think our kids need one another. I think our kids need mentors. I think our kids need community. They need a healthy family, everything that you said. But I also do think they need a place where they can have like this constant rock where they can talk about their big feelings and not be like assessed but be supported be prompted be pushed and develop maybe one-to-one strategies that exist in a safe space because even having a best friend you know you get older you're in high school maybe and you want you may be thinking about breaking up with someone you feel like it's not a good relationship you know your your best friend is biased right but having a more objective person that maybe can help you unpack the feelings who's not as biased they're not as connected and can maybe help you grow and those different strategies and so forth. I think that's the rising tide that helps raise all ships.
0: I love all that. And I mean, I am a family counselor, so obviously I do one-on-one work with kids. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not degrading my own, my own therapy, but I will tell you, I've also worked in, in incredible nursery schools and and uh, been in incredible classroom environments where to your point, we're social creatures first. And I use the accurate, like I use ABCs. Everyone thinks about the ABCs of education. I say acceptance, belonging, and then curriculum, because mm-hmm. it's really hard to put a kid in a class. Like you said, if you're 11 years old and you know, you're like-minded, people are really they're all off at Harvard but you're only 11 you don't want to play Pokemon you don't you feel other you feel other when you're that your brain is thinking those kinds of things you feel other and how do we make those people accomplish that that primary need for belonging what's that going to look like and we got to get creative to solve that solution and I've Mm -hmm. also worked with unbelievable kids who were like, had like super hyperactivity to the point where it was really challenging for the other people to be around them. And sure enough, though, it was, I call it the power of the group was the power of the group that finally had to educate this person. You know, we can't play games with you and you're bouncing everywhere. And he learned, I want to play with you so badly. I'll, I'll, I'll learn to inhibit my impulses because I want to get in this game. And that Mm -hmm. was taught by his peers (laughs) in a, in a supportive community of adults could kind of like oversee that and negotiate it that wouldn't have happened one on one in my class in my therapy office right, that had yeah. to happen in the sandbox of life with really great trained teachers to you know facilitate that and that's why i really appreciate these specialized um school can we so can we talk about your school <laughs> sure, sure, sure. so yeah all right so even though you were first initiated at bridges you went on and started your own institution so t- tell us about your school
2: yeah, so we have um, basically everything that we've discussed today is the reason why I did what I did. But It's called so the Young I,
0: Scholars Academy.
2: Yeah, Young Scholars Academy. It's a virtual enrichment school. So we're, we're not like a full-time kinder, elementary, or high, anything like that. We're, we're simply an enrichment program that exists to help kids do exactly everything we've talked about. Find like-minded friends, explore their strengths and talents and things that they can't find anywhere else, and and study under mentors who totally get them, who are often um, expert master teachers, field specialists, and often just like the kids but grown up. So the idea was, I think the best way to do what needs to be done is often from the outside of the system and Young Scholars Academy was founded to create a space where kids could be doing the stuff that schools don't seem to be doing. So take a 10 year old, that 11 year old girl, even I was talking about previously, you know. Her day looks like, you know, an hour of a robotics course. She's taking an hour of an engineering course. She's in an advocacy class where she's she's built a website, and she is, you know, writing uh, different climate change specialists to help her get curriculum together to send to schools and write Congress people and so forth. And so the whole model is based on students developing their strengths, developing their interests, making like-minded friends. And doing it in, in, a, in a very safe little virtual bubble. And we have uh, 14 different teachers who I call mentors. Uh, we have about 150 students who are enrolled, and we offer th- about 30 different classes. And again, it's all the things that I really feel ought to exist. I, I think of education much like university. Remember when you're in university and the coolest classes are like the 400 levels? You know, yeah. when you're when you're a first year, it's like History 101, which is a snooze fest. But when you're a fourth year, it's like History of Women in the Vietnam War. You're like, God, that's awesome. Right. So we just tried to do that. But instead of just flipping it from like a senior to a first year student, we've done it from university to kindergarten. And so we have five to 18 year olds. Um, and the courses are, you know, World War One or World War II weaponry, um, coding, artificial intelligence. Students are like doing JavaScript coding to learn more about AI and ChatGPT. Um, we've got speech and debate, executive function classes, uh, uh, mine, Minecraft, D and D. We've got digital art, like podcasting, all, all kinds of stuff. And we also then have a little bit more academic classes too. We have four courses, which are AP courses, advanced placement courses. So because our kids have such brilliant brains, and a lot of the times they just need the learning to learn skills so in this way they're doing like we have like a college level art history european history american history psychology and so forth so that they can have a moment to learn you know how do you study for uh, something that you're, you're given the content in august and the test is in may what are different ways to organize our brains organize our notes what are test taking strategies because our kids are so brilliant they just struggle to articulate and struggle to show it so A lot of the times it'll be a class that's seemingly about one thing and it's really kind of another which is a life skill Um, and we have a course for seniors which is called adulting and thriving which is helping you know our kids get ready for the big transition whatever that might be taking a gap year studying abroad going to university getting a job and so kind of transitioning independent living but the big the big key element is that we've created a bubble where kids who might be stuck they might be marooned by their zip code they might feel like they're the only person like them out in the world to come together, to meet friends that are similar, to to nerd out, to explore content they crave and can't find. And then we also have a bunch of community events. So we have like social clubs, everybody that signs up um, gets a social club, which is just like a homeroom that you would have in a traditional brick and mortar school. And it's just a place where they can hang out in breakout rooms and zoom and they play icebreakers and games. Um, we do things like museum nights and student talent nights and showcase. And we'll have like, experts come in and talk we have a lot of like really big names in the field come in and present to our parents um we have ucla coming and presenting to our kids helping them understand their brains through like looking at brain scans and imaging and things like that so it's just kind of like a safe haven for kids to develop their strengths and talents and feel understood and feel like they're awesome because we know they are and they just need to see it themselves
0: I mean, mo- most of the people listening to the podcast are American or, or um, European. Do, do these? Do these? Is there any criteria for getting registered? Is it open to the public? Do these credits get recognized other places? I...
2: Yeah. So essentially, I say like, if you're looking at us, you're you're in the right place. You know, like if you you feel like your kid has something incredible to offer and they seem to be struggling everywhere else, then Young Scholars Academy exists for you, and it's just as much for parents as it is for kids because as we kind of mentioned previously, like a lot of the deep work starts with parents, like we need to make that strength based transformation. Um, So I say if you have a kid who you feel like has asynchronous has strengths and struggles, um, who maybe has a hard time socializing, then please, there is no application, you know, you just simply enroll in a class. um, And families don't, Ever leave? So I mean, you know, it's just uh, it's a really special place. As far as credits, the, the so we're not an, an accredited program in in the way that like a conventional school would be, but as an enrichment school, we do have accredited classes. So those AP courses, for example, those are College Board approved, and we are approved with like over ten different homeschool charters and ve- and vendor programs. So. We do we getting like like state money and and grants and things like that. So we are recognized in that way. and so people who are homeschooling, um, you can you know put homeschoolers don't exactly have like a transcript, but usually have like a record. Yeah. That they might have to run by their charter. and so so people are keeping track of our courses and putting them on their records
0: so you would still just to be again every place is different so i'm not going to go through all the different iterations people can reach out to you we're going to put all the information on the website um, or or on the in the show notes so people can connect with you around that but it so the idea then is it's not like this is where you would go to grade school or or high school that would give you your grade 12 diploma you, this right. is yeah you still need to have that
2: correct yeah, yeah. our families okay. are usually either one of kind of three groups they are either homeschooling and they're just on their own journey. And this is like their social, this is like their social um, watering hole where those students might be with us for, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 hours a week or something. Um, we've got students who were in public school, private school, online, in person, and they might be with us one to five hours a week. Um, but we are not, uh, trying to be a, you know, accredited transcript oriented school. We're very much a uh, enrichment program, which is actually by design, not a grade school or anything like that, because I don't believe in grades and homework and busy work. So.
0: Good for you. Yeah, and yay, because that system doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I don't yeah. think it does. Yeah, that is, is so so amazing. Oh, my gosh. I'm so glad that you've put your life energies into this and how many families are benefiting. And what a, what a great model that hopefully people will catch on that there's a different way to do education. There's a different way to tap in and uh, and, and see these kids. Is there something that I didn't ask you that you want to make sure is a takeaway for our listeners? You know, like I said, we've got people around the world, teachers, parents, grad students that are trying to figure out therapy. Is there is anything else you'd like to add to the mix before we wrap up?
2: Yeah, I think it's just so important to let go a bit and ask, be inquisitive. We talked about being inquisitive earlier of your kids, you know, why are they behaving certain ways? And I think the most important type of uh, curiosity we can have is for ourselves. why do we have the thoughts that we do? where do they come from? you know um, I had to die as a teacher and grow as a mentor because when I was teaching history previously I had had history teachers and I thought darn it it has to be done this way like the greats that taught me you know and it wasn't until I became an enrichment mentor that I realized once I started teaching things that I had never taught before I had never taken, that's when like the really good authentic learning happened because I let go of how it came to pass. And I think that it's really important for us as adults, whether you're an educator, a professional, a parent, etc. I think it's so important to be inquisitive. Why are we doing things the way that we're doing? Why are we coming to the conclusions? Is it just a, I had it this way and ours can always be this way. Cause I think that's the worst thing that we can ever do. I think the single worst line in education is it's always been done this way, right? I think that kills any creativity and I think it converges all brains to an outsized, outdated mean. And I think that our job is to push out to the fringes, right? A question, instead of learning the, you know, the date and the time and the inventor of who made the brick or who developed this bathtub shape, you know, a better question would be, well, how many, how many different uses can you come up with for a brick or for a bathtub, right? Can we let go of the kinds of things that we think our kids need to learn? Can we let go of how things come to pass? And just create spaces for our students to develop their beautiful brains and grow into their best selves because it's a win-win. They feel better self-affect. They feel better self-esteem. They feel better everything and they better serve us as a, as a global society by leaning into their strengths. And I'll go full circle and end on this. It's just the Picasso and Einstein example. It's like, it's so obvious there. We want Picasso's, we want Einstein's, right? We want Simone Biles, we want Greta Thunberg's, we want Richard Branson's, we want George Lucas's. And we know them for one thing. So they don't need to be a jack of all trades. They don't need to be good at everything. So let your kid just go head first into something and see what happens because they're learning a lot more than you realize along the way. And even if that one thing doesn't work out, those skills are transferable and that's where they're gonna lead a meaningful life.
0: Oh, so beautiful. So, so beautiful. Thank you. Uh, How can people find you take a minute to do a big full pitch for yourself here? And I'll whatever you mention, I'll put in the show notes. How do people find you, you, follow you, get more?
2: Yeah, please. Just one step forward is head to youngscholarsacademy.org. We enroll six times a year. So we have um, basically five semesters that run throughout the school year and then one summer camp season. And so I don't know when this will air. But right now, for example, we start classes next week, and then they'll run two months into october and then they start again and so forth so i say come check us out um you know again for all the reasons we have an incredible community we have the most committed mentors and if you look at the testimonials on our website you'll see it's tears goosebumps laughs um, everything in between and i think that the biggest trend we had a, a open house about three weeks ago and uh, a mom and a kid came on and they're like you know it was really adorable the, the, the big trend through the night was that this mom said, this is the first yes and space we've ever found. You know, that we're our kids not being said no, that they're constantly being told yes and, or yes, how? Okay, how did you arrive here? And every parent that spoke that night said it. And another mom and her son Came and spoke, and I'll, I'll, I'm sorry, I'm going on a tangent. No, but, please, no, uh, take,
0: take your time. It's great. The,
2: the 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 mom said, I spoke with my son after the open house, and I asked him, you know, what what do you love the most about Young Scholars Academy? And he said, obviously, I love the classes, I love the kids, I love the teachers, but it's the first place I've ever been, and this is a ten year old. It's the first place I've ever been where everybody wants to be there, and that's what makes the classes the best because the kids are loving the stuff that they're doing. And they're there because they want to be, not because they have to be. And this mom said, "She's like, I totally broke down. Like, I was a, a lawyer, you know, and I didn't realize that until I was in law school. Is that you know, most people were just trying to make their parents happy or do you know kind of what had to be done. And, and uh, there's something that's kind of special that's happening here. So, so to answer your question, yeah, if you head on over to youngscholarsacademy.org, you can check out all the testimonials, um, check out all the families, check out the courses, and whether we're open for enrollment or not, we open every eight weeks. So join our join our next wave whichever America. one yeah get the next wave yeah and the classes are always building on each other so the sooner yeah. you can get in the better because whether it's a robotics or coding or whether it's advocacy or you name it um, you know taking the taking the class earlier is is really important and and, and one final thought here I know I keep saying final so I've cheapened the word but <laughs> I think the goal is uh, you know think about what kids do despite their education. You know, a lot of the times our students are doing the things that fill them up and interest them after school, and our whole mission is to just bring that into the center, put a light on it, attach a mentor to it, bring a couple kids together around that campfire, and develop that. Right? If you have a kid who's really interested in really morbid things, you know, murder and genocide, and um, you know, statistical things like how do insurances calculate? um, You know, why is 23-year-old men are the most expensive to insure? You know let's just develop that as a, as a curriculum. Let's just learn that out in the open because we're learning all the other stuff that you want them to learn when they're reading Shakespeare and learning algebra anyway. So I think that a big part of our program is the stuff that you can't find anywhere because it's edgy, because it's juicy, because it's forbidden. And then just having a class around it because we can get them to learn everything, right? Rather than a, you know, let's put this autistic kid in a, in a social skills class. Why don't we put them in a dungeons and dragons class? Or they actually care about the quest at hand. And then we can work on things like wait time, taking turns, problem solving, being Mm -hmm. empathetic, and so forth. So check us out at Young Scholars Academy, and I think you'll be really happy with what you find.
0: And what time zone are you guys on
2: there? So we're in Pacific, but we have classes like 11 hours a day. So we run classes from 9 a.m. Pacific time to 7 p.m. Pacific time.
0: Okay, so So. if you're here, like I'm in Toronto, so if there's Eastern Standard Time people and they've got their kids in school from nine till three, they Mm -hmm. can still grab some of the classes later Mm -hmm. in the day. Yeah,
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And And we're always trying to find that sweet spot because now we have families in over 30 states, 13 countries. It's tough. You know, everybody will say like on one coast, can you go a little bit earlier? And then we go early and the other coast is like these are too late. Um, so we're trying to find that sweet spot always, but, um, yeah, please, please do check us out. And even if it's a little bit earlier than you'd like to go or a little bit later than you would normally go check out one class and I promise you'll come back. You'll love it so much.
0: Kids will wake up for Dungeons and Dragons.
2: <laughs> exactly. That's exactly true. No, it's true. It's they so have true. endless
0: right? energy for the stuff they love. And that's the whole point. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I, thank you. I, I'm so I'm so glad we had this opportunity to talk. Um, I, our listeners don't know, but um, you've been fighting with some germs and you're about to head oh, yeah. up to a honeymoon and we're trying to squeeze this in in between. So I'm glad you're feeling better and have a have a wonderful trip. And thank you so much for what you're doing for our young people. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Allison. You are a beacon. And I think that you, you inspire so many families. And um, I, I appreciate the, the space that you hold for everyone. So thank you. And thanks for inviting me on.
0: Hopefully, we'll have another topic soon. I hope so. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast. So thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit.
3: Amen